no one had a dream that I was the <laughs> co-presenter. And I mean, it, luckily for me, yeah. I was good in the dream. <laughs> and luckily for me, I was, you know, I was well behaved and pleasant. In the dream. And, um, <laughs> in the dream. And at the time, um, uh, I was sort of, uh, I'd been living in Los Angeles for the last seven years, but I'd actually come back here. And they didn't know that I'd come back, so they said, oh, well, he won't be available. But, um, but I was. So I went and tested for it. And of course, um, it, I wasn't a slam dunk for the job because, uh, you know, we had two female hosts on the show and then one male and one female. So I think uh, there was an expectation that it would be another female host to replace Sandy. Um, and I know I've played a lot of ladies in my time, but I am actually a man. <laughs> That is the voice of Matt Lucas, and this is How to Wow. Coming up on episode 27, Matt Lucas talks baked potato, Walliams and Little Britain, past, present and potentially future, and whispers of a movie from the horse's mouth itself. Plus, from earthquake insurance for his house in Los Angeles, back to two-bed bliss here in the UK. I love Matt Lucas, known him for ages. Couldn't wait for this conversation, and I hope you're going to enjoy it too. But first, can I tell you, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, my friends. Every morning, Tash, my wife and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity and digestion. I've been on it for about four weeks now and I feel genuinely different my skin is smoother i love a nap in the day i don't always get to have one but now if i don't somehow it feels okay you know it could be a placebo effect but i don't think it is well whichever way i look at it i think athletic greens is working for me a deep seaweed green like nature itself this eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds like no more than five or six okay ten tops to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous after hearing my go-to wellness wise guys go on about Athletic Greens for years, you know, Rich Roll and the likes of Tim Ferriss, you know, you know, you know the names I'm talking about. I've been on my own Athletic Greens journey now with my wife for about four weeks. And honestly, honestly, I'm convinced it's made a difference. I always, always hankered for a nap in the afternoons, you know, and I still, I still try and get like an hour of lying down. You know, I actually lie down on the rug on the floor in the living room because it grounds me but over the last month if I've missed out on my hour which sometimes I do it doesn't come back to bite me at tea time with the kids when it usually does it feels alright I mean I still want it I don't know if it's a placebo effect but honestly um, I just feel different my skin feels smoother I'm thinking more clearly I don't know I don't know, but give it a go. Deep seaweed green, like nature herself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six. Okay, ten tops in our house. To prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts, athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow. OK, and don't forget slash how to wow, because this will entitle you to the special deal Athletic Greens have given how to wow listeners. A free year's supply of vitamin D and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go. Once again, Athletic 
athleticgreens.com slash don't forget how to wow athleticgreens.com slash how to wow get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today cue the tape all right Matthew hello there how are you <laughs> you sound great yay yay Matt See? yay Matt thank you thank what a you for having me on your podcast well you're very welcome to how to wow Matt Lucas uh, what a week to get you by the way so we have we've had the bake-off final we've had um Lucas and Williams walking together once again hand in hand <laughs> in the countryside what might that not mean? hand in hand no not hand in hand because well, of course uh, social distancing virtually you know what I mean and also Merry Christmas baked potato um the Christmas single the charity Christmas single is out where shall we go first let's stick with Christmas Tell us about the song. Well, while I was doing the Bake Off, I actually wrote a couple of books. I wrote uh, my very, 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 very silly book of jokes. And I wrote Merry Christmas Baked Potato. And then I decided, both books are out now, by the way, um, perfect Christmas stocking fillers, Chris. But then I thought, well, why don't I record a song of the book? Because uh, I'd written it in verse. And then I uh, decided to release the song in aid of Fair Share because I was so inspired by what Marcus Rashford has been doing for them. So um, uh, you can download that now. You can buy it. And, and it all really comes off the back of the first Baked Potato song, which I originally did on Shooting Stars about ooh, 20 years ago. And then when the pandemic was sort of um, starting... I was just noticing that a lot of people weren't really isolating or distancing and I was a bit panicked. And I also thought that kids probably were finding it hard to adapt to all the new rules and regulations. And so I just thought, is there a, is there a more fun way of putting this stuff over? So I rewrote the lyrics to Thank You Baked Potato and I just sang it at my piano on, and put it on Twitter. And then it sort of it sort of took off, really, and, and uh, well, in no small part thanks to you and other people who, who sort of were playing it, because I recorded that as a single in aid of Feed NHS, which was um, a charity I was a small part of setting up. And, um, and, then it, and then I started doing loads of Thank You Baked Potato duets. With, with, I did one with Gary Barlow and Brian May and sang it with the English National Opera and the um, uh, uh, BBC Philharmonic and uh, all of the concert orchestra, I think. And, um, and there were brass band versions and uh, reggae versions and people were doing all their own versions on YouTube and it took off. And then people are saying to me, what else for the baked potatoes? So here you have Merry Christmas baked potato now. <laughs> Uh, could it go further? Could we have Happy Easter baked potato, Happy Valentine's oh, Day think, baked potato? I think the possibilities are endless. Yes. You know, why not? All those until, until we end up with, please leave me alone now, baked potato. <laughs> Who killed baked potato? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the undoing of baked potato. Matt, how does it feel? How does this window of your career feel compared to others? Is, do you feel there's a flow? Because, you know, when things are going well, and many of us, you know, have experienced this, there is a certain, it's almost like, you know, you're being driven. You're, you're not the driver. I mean, you are the driver. There's no doubt about it. But um, things, things tend to come more easily at certain times rather than others. How do you feel now, right now in your career? Um... Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. I've got obviously got the song out. The, uh, Bake Off has been 
um, a lovely thing to be a part of. And I don't think I truly realised what a big show that was when I took it on because I hadn't actually seen it before they asked me to um, test for it. But also I'm back in Les Miserables, which is uh, something I love doing. And um, yeah, so it's all sort of coming together and it, 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 yeah, it does... It does feel nice, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm aware of the ups and the downs. So um, I never take anything for granted, and uh, I just try and be appreciative and um, try and be try and be pleasant to people, you know, and thank them and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's not about taking it for granted, is it? So much it's about appreciating when the sun is shining, because because you know, night will always follow day, and and rain will always always follow sunshine. And it it seems to me now you. You know, you've sown some seeds, you know, and it's a cyclical thing, isn't it? It's, it's like crop rotation. We used to learn about it at school. And it just seems to me like you have a lot of flowers blooming, quite rightly, by the way. Congratulations. It's all really good news. How did you, you. How did you get the gig on Bake Off? How did you get onto their radar? Why did they call it's you? Because so... you weren't a famous fan, as you, as you just rightly said. Well, I, I, you know, uh, they were testing lots of people. Um, and Noel, I mean... Noel had a dream that I was the <laughs> co-presenter. And, I mean, it, luckily for me, yeah. I was good in the dream. <laughs> and luckily for me, I was, you know, I was well-behaved and pleasant. In the dream. And, um, <laughs> in the dream. And also, luckily for me, yeah. Noel didn't say to Channel 4 or the Bake Off people, oh, I had this dream that Matt Lucas was the co-host. He just said, oh, why don't we see if Matt Lucas will be available? And at the time... Um, uh, I would sort of, uh, I'd been living in Los Angeles for the last seven years, but I'd actually come back here and they didn't know that I'd come back. So they said, oh, well, he won't be available. But, um, but I was. And, uh, and so, um, I, so I went and tested for it and it was, it was, it was quite, well, my agent called me and said, oh, they'd love you to test for the Bake Off. And I said, oh, that's really nice. But, you know, I presented a show on TV about seven or eight years ago and I don't know if people really liked it very much and so I, I should probably not try that again and she said well look it's, it's the bake-off don't you love the bake-off I said well I you know me I just watch football and the odd documentary I don't I haven't actually seen the bake-off um they said well my agent said well look watch the bake-off because you'll like it and so that night it was a Friday night I watched it and I thought, oh, this is good. And then I put another episode <laughs> on. I thought, oh, this is really good. But it was about three in the morning by then. I thought, I better go to bed. But um, the next day, I contacted my agent. I said, this show's brilliant. Um, this is my new favourite show, but I'm still not a TV presenter, you know. And um, But she said, well, just go for the audition. So on the that was on the Friday night. So on the Tuesday, I went to a garden centre because they don't want to tell anyone that they're auditioning for the Bake Off because... Uh, there's a big sort of um, veil of secrecy around it. You know, they don't want to give away who might be the host because there's so much conjecture in the press. So so um, uh, what we have to do is we have to go to a garden centre and pretend to people that we were making a show about horticulture. And the problem here is I don't even have any outside space uh, where I live in London and I know nothing about horticulture. And this became very evident very quickly when I was talking to people and people were saying, this is a bit of a come down for you, isn't it? <laughs> and, you know, I say, oh, thanks very much. And so I was sort of, you know, it was quite, it was quite spirited. And then that afternoon I went to a house and tested with Noel and um, we had to arrive separately, 
you know, and uh, just so that nobody saw us together, so nobody would think that, you know, I was testing for the Bake Off. And uh, we larked about on camera. That was fun. And then that was a Tuesday. And then the Thursday was my birthday. And they uh, and then I got a call to say they'd like you to do it. And I was really, I was really chuffed. And I and I and I was seeing close, you know, a family and some close friends that night. But I couldn't really tell anyone because it was a secret, you see. So then there was the whole business of not telling anyone at all, and the show being referred to in in a kind of coded way, and uh, you know, and keeping the announcements secret, and when will they announce, and when won't they announce. And of course, um, it, I wasn't a slam dunk for the job because, uh, you know, we had two female hosts on the show and then one male and one female. So I think uh, there was an expectation that it would be another female host to replace Sandy. Um, and I know I've played a lot of ladies in my time, but I am actually a man. <laughs> so so I think... I think uh, I, I, you know, I think there was still a lot of discussion about whether I would be the right person for it. Well, you and you know, I've watched the show. I've watched the show go out, Chris, and I still look at bits and go, "Oh, I, I think I should do that differently." And I don't. I think I'm being too wacky there, and maybe I should calm down a bit here. I was a bit like the. I was a bit puppyish, and I think maybe I can calm down a bit now. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, because it's a show that, you know, everybody's. It, it's it's the ultimate sort of ensemble telly gang show it's such a light show anyway you know it's the lightest of light entertainment and therefore almost you even thinking about your performance you know potentially is is uh you know is a bit too pointy do you know what i mean it might if you change too much i mean what because I, I imagine they film forever you know and it all happens in much of it happens in the edit anyway so what might you back so you're going to back off from your puppyishness which well, will, i don't know well, I think I can relax a little bit more into it. Right. But also the other thing is, you know, um, you're there for two days and actually there is a lot of reassuring of the bakers that takes place that doesn't appear in the show itself because that's not always the most interesting thing to see. You know, you want a bit of um, drama, you know. So, so actually sometimes it looks like we maybe are being a bit flippant when the bakers might be struggling but actually we're not we will have we will have assured them and calmed them a lot but you just don't always see that in the show and what about the fringe benefits of working on the bake-off obviously you know i'm sure it pays well and things like that but but what about the i mean the catering is the show isn't it and the delights on offer are plentiful no, infinite I mean, almost this is a problem you know <laughs> uh, my i mean the, when i got the job i said can you can I have? I mean, think about this, right? Have a gastric so, band fitted. Well, I said, can I have a? Can I have elasticated trousers? Is actually what I asked for. Um, because it's yes. I mean, oh. I have a more pronounced waddle than I had before. That's for sure. Oh, can't, um, can't be easy. Delicious cakes, and you know what? Not just, not just the delicious cakes that are made by the bakers that you see on screen, but also, you know, if you know the show, then when you see the technical challenge. And you go to see Prue and Paul in the tent talking. They're in a sort of mini tent talking about the technical challenge. And they have beautiful cakes in front of them that have been made by the amazing home economics girls who work on the show. These are the sort of perfect examples of what the bakers will be trying to make in their technical. Mm. Those cakes are also available to eat backstage <laughs> as well. So, I mean, it's... It's... Uh, oh, dear. Uh, I, mean, how... I might need a... 
I might need a, a muzzle. But you, you, I mean, you know, it's, it's it's no secret that you've you've had your challenges uh, with cakes in the past, and uh, so have, as yes. as we all have, you know, and indeed in the future. Um, Chris, I've never seen you anything other than lithe. Oh no, seriously. People said to me, "It's all right for you. You're naturally skinny." Nobody's naturally fucking skinny. <laughs> well, I'm not anyway. That's for sure. Uh, no question well, about you've, that. Well, you've well, you've 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 kept the weight off very well. Yeah, because I run twelve miles a day and I cycle into work and stuff like you know. Seriously. Um, yeah, my son is on. You're the new, you're the new Chris Miles. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. How's he doing? Have you talked to him recently? No, I, but uh, I see <laughs> photographs of him looking amazing. And he, looks, he looks like the next James Bond. He's yeah. like, like, who's that guy? Um, He's like, uh, uh, sorry, Idris Elba. I know, I but, know. But uh, I'm going to be Bond. Oh, what's going on there? Um, where, where should we go next? It's, it has been the. It's been a cracking year for you, from from my point of view, from what what I can see at least. So, so um, you and Williams working back together. Um, how did that happen? Where where was the bread broken first? Keeping the baking theme going there for a while, most recently. Well, we'd sort of. Uh, you see, we were in contact, even though people didn't know. We had been in contact for a while, and. Um, and then David, you know, we were thinking, what can we do? What can we do? And then David had this idea. Um, when we thought Brexit was going to happen on October the 31st, he said, why don't we do a radio show, Little Brexit, where we bring back the Little Britain characters? And I thought it was a great idea. And it was also something I could do because I was in Les Miserables at the time, um, which I'm back in again. I'm currently rehearsing it. And um, uh, I was in Les Miserables at the time. And so Monday to Saturday, I was performing, but I could write with David during the days. And then on the Sunday, which would be my one day off, we could get together and uh, do this recording. But again, cloak and dagger, because we we didn't want the audience filled with journalists because we didn't want the jokes to appear in the newspapers before the show had gone out, you know. Um, so so we sort of, again, had to work very secretively. But we got Ruth Jones back, of course, who plays Mavamwi and uh, Joanne Condon, who plays Pat and uh, in, in the Marjorie Dawes sketches, and Paul Putner as well, who's in those sketches. And we got Tony Head back as the, um, uh, you know, Prime Minister. And um, we did this radio show on uh, uh, October of last year. And we just had so much fun. So we'd love to do something else together. And we did this comic relief, Big Night in Children in Need thing, where we were obviously each in our own homes, but we were doing... Uh, Little Britain characters again, but we'd love to do something else. We 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 message each other most days, um, you know, usually in the way that everyone messages each other with silly things we've seen on the internet, you know, and funny photos and memes and stuff like that. We're like everyone else. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have a couple of ideas of things that we're just sort of slowly looking into, but he's obviously very busy with his children's books, and I'm now writing... You know, uh, hopefully I can do more baked potatoes stuff and uh, the the very, 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 very silly joke book that I've released is doing well. So I'm working on the very silly prank book now as a follow up. So we've both got quite a lot going on. I have the bake off. He has Bryn's Got Talent. But but the um, the will is there. And, uh, you know, we needed a break. We had the break. And we've just sort of picked up again. And it's it's really nice. What was the length of time between the last writing of the first round of your sort of iteration together and the most recent one. How many years was it? 1,800. 
1800. I thought it was 1900. It was, I don't know. I think it was a probably nine years we just needed a break and then it just i think we needed a break which probably we probably needed a year and then it just sort of and then we both got kind of busy and then i'd moved to america and then he obviously you know he writes three four children's books a year britain's got talent and so like i say i think we were in contact much earlier than people realize and you know uh and sort of um you know in a very cordial way but it was just trying to find a way to to actually get together because the other thing is that because little britain was was as big as it was you know we do feel a slight pressure that when we come back with something it needs to be big yeah uh you know so it's it's it that you know that requires a lot more thought and and more availability so, you know, I don't know, maybe one day we'll go back on stage together because that's that's how we started. And I think we could have we could have fun on stage together. But we've have we have an we have an idea for for a we have a film idea at the moment that we're sort of um, swap, you know, that we're talking about. But who knows? Who knows? It's very early days. So exciting. I mean, you know, every dynamic has its subtleties and, you know, um, it's been its advantages and disadvantages. The thing about double acts is there's two of you. So, you know, if you have if you have some kind of schism or whatever you want to call it uh, without getting into the nitty gritty, you know, um, there's if there were three, then there's there's a there's an, uh, an arbitrator. If there's four, even there's two. And, you know, and then if you're a solo artist, you get more money, but you can't really break up with yourself. So you, sometimes you have a breakdown. Um, but the old 50 50, when there's any two of you you're either together or you're not um and that's so interesting and i was thinking about um about other double acts um if that's the right phrase you know Stephen merchant and ricky gervais and and reeves and mortimer who i know you loved in the first place and that's sort of how you enjoyed your first kind of uh, success in the business as it were um yeah what is it about you know about yourself and, and david when you're together you know it's 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 all your talent as individuals, but you know, with added rocket fuel, isn't it? What ha- what happens? Why is it with Merchant and Gervais and Reeves and Mortimer and and um, French and Saunders? And what what is it? What is it? And could could you get together with Merchant, for example? You know, or does it have to be Williams? Is it is it is it like a marriage made in heaven and and that's it forever? Well, Stephen is a friend of mine, and I would work with him in a heartbeat. But um, with David. You know, we we met in 1990, so we met 30 years ago oh, no. now. And I was 16, and he was 18, turning 19. And um, the following year, we were working together on a on a play in the National Youth Theatre, and it was The Tempest. And he was one of the principals, and I was actually bringing props on and off stage. So I was a sort of a techie, as they call it. And um, we just had this... Uh, Affinity. I mean, I think I think I became sort of his fan before he became mine because I would watch him be hilarious and very daring in rehearsals, whereas he probably just thought of me as a bit of an acolyte, a, a sycophant um, who was laughing too loudly. But I really would watch him from the wings every night. And I was, uh, how old was I? 17. And I had this dream. I thought one day, one day I'd like to meet Reeves and Mortimer and one day I'd like to work with David Williams, as he was known then. And those were my two ambitions. And of course, <laughs> within two or three years, I'd, uh, well, within, yeah, I'd, 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 you know, I'd fulfilled my ambitions. But we had, we're both suburban boys 
you know, me from northwest London, uh, David just south of London in, in uh, Rygate in Surrey. Um, and we both um, sort of were this mixture of sort of uh, that provincial upbringing that you get outside London, but also both being within touching distance of the centre of London. I mean, where I grew up is the suburbs, but you're about 10, 12 miles from the centre of London and similar for David. So you would still be able to go to London on weekends and go to the theatre and see Michael Gambon in a play or, or go and see a concert or something like that and then go back home again to kind of process. And sometimes the people around you, you'd meet other like-minded people in the suburbs who also had that pull towards the metropolis. And David was one of those people, you know, and, and not everyone has that. You know, some people live the most fulfilling lives. I don't think my mother would, you know, she grew up in Golders Green, then I grew up in, in Stanmore, and she now lives in Hertfordshire. And I don't think, uh, you see, she's moved further and further out of London. Whereas for me, it was always about moving further and further in London. And mm. the same for David. It was that pull of something a bit more cosmopolitan. And that is not to remotely denigrate uh, anything that happens outside London, but that was our pull that we had together. And we both felt other, you know, uh, we both felt different. I mean, for me, um, it was partly my sexuality, which I was still sort of coming to understand, but it was also the fact that I'd lost my hair when I was six years old. I was different, you know, uh, I was, I was overweight, had no hair, I was I was uh, experiencing same sex attraction, all of those things that sort of make you feel a bit different. And, um, you know, I grew up with uh, Section 28 in schools where even the acknowledgement of the existence of homosexuality could be uh, seen as um, a teacher breaking the law just to let you know about it. So I, I grew up feeling very isolated and um uh, and David, in, in his own way, for his own reasons, also felt a sense of isolation, I think. Um, not to say that we didn't have loving families, because we both did have loving families and still do, that we're very close to. But we both just had this hunger for something else. We both felt a little bit like aliens, I think. Have you compared notes with Stephen about having a, an erstwhile partner from a writing and performing point of view? Um... Yeah, I think we're both aware of the dynamic. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I always think that what you create together is greater than anything you would do on your own. And I also think that um, it's really important when you're working in a duo to sort of put aside your own voice and think that every joke has to be formed in your own image and to actually kind of accept, no, this is a Matt and Dave joke. This isn't a Matt joke or a Dave joke. And so sometimes that does mean you're performing something that maybe you wouldn't have thought of. And it's much better than what you would have thought of on your own. And sometimes you're performing something that doesn't feel as personal to you, but the audience are enjoying it. And so you go with it. And, uh, and, and it's not to worry too much if you're performing something that doesn't necessarily feel like you wrote it. Um, cause maybe you didn't, but how can I put it? I don't think I'm explaining myself very articulately. No, Feel free it. to cut I, that no, bit I get, out. No, I get it completely. But for example, it's okay, it's okay. It's okay to sometimes not love absolutely everything you do. Yeah. 
because uh, because the flip side is that you get to do stuff that's way better than anything you would have thought of yourself. So so it swings around about, you know, and it's to realize the difference between you as a solo artist and you as a double act and to enjoy that, really. So, for example, could you could you have did you ever think about could you parachute Stephen into where David was and could he parachute you into where Ricky was? Because there's two of you you're both really funny. You both really like each other and you get on so well. Could that happen? I, we've never thought about it or tried it. And I think Stephen is, was never as interested in performing when he was with Ricky as I was with David. And I think Stephen as a performer is something that sort of developed really outside of his relationship with Ricky. But um, no, I mean, it would be, it could work. It would just be enti- something entirely different, wouldn't it? But I mean, I'm a great admirer of Steve's work. And, and I, I met Steve actually before he was famous. I met him about 25 years ago because my friend was at university with him and um, uh, said, you must come and see my friends. They're doing a a show at the Edinburgh Festival where me and David were doing our show. So I went to I went to see their show. And, you know, it was the usual sort of mixed bags. But I remember that they (laughs) they did this thing where they were going. uh, We thought it'd be really great to put some words to some of uh, the most popular TV themes. Uh, let us know what you think of this. And they just went, EastEnders, EastEnders, EastEnders. And they just did it with a whole succession of TV themes. And I remember thinking that was really funny. And then in about 1997, I was at Granada Studios filming this uh, sitcom series called Sunnyside Farm, right? Which Phil Daniels and Mark Addy starred in. And Damon Alban had uh, done the um, theme tune for, right? And I was walking down the corridor of Granada Television and I bumped into Stephen Merchant, who also still wasn't famous yet, and he was a contestant on Blockbusters. <laughs> Do you know, did you know that he went on Blockbusters? How did he fit on the set? <laughs> well, he was a contestant on Blockbusters. And I was like, hey, wow. how are you doing? Are you, work- are you so working here? Funny. It's really nice to see you again. You know, and I, like oh. I say, how old was I? I think we were both 23, and I was like, hey, I remember you. I met you in Edinburgh. You're Ian's friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm on Blockbusters. I'm not doing that well, actually. I'm just on a toilet break. So that was how I knew him. It was that funny guy in Edinburgh who was on Blockbusters. Wow. I love Stephen Merchant. I just think he's got such a lovely way about him. I think he's so clever. Um, I can't wait to see what he ends up doing. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, he's... He's uh, struck gold in the past, but I just think there's a lot more gold to come with Stephen. I don't know what you think. I agree. I agree. Uh, I'm I, I'm a fan of everything he does, really. I'm a fan of him as an actor. I think he makes really interesting choices. Um, doesn't go for the obvious ones. I think he's a really accomplished director. I watched uh, a few different cuts of uh, Fighting With My Family because he's a pal and, and there's this thing, because I was living in LA at the time and so is he, and there's this thing where you sort of, you invite your friends to watch rough cuts of your work and, and give you their <laughs> That's notes. so cool. And I sat, yeah, but I sat in this room and there were lots of really uh, accomplished writers and they all gave Steve a lot of notes for this film. And then I just went, well, I think, I think it's great. I didn't really have many notes. I really liked it like that. And I felt a bit useless. Um, but uh, yeah, I think he's brilliant. Tell us about that LA period where quite a few people, you know, there was a Brit pack over there for a while, wasn't there? What was it like? Who was around? Well, Stephen was around. 
Michael Sheen was spending a lot of time out there. I would see him. Uh, um, Gethin Jones. Um, uh, who else was there? Robbie led the charge in a way, didn't he, I suppose? Oh, God, he was out there. Who else was there? Oh. Richard Bacon was out there for a while, wasn't he? Oh, Richard Bacon. I saw him out there a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. That was nice. There's a few people, yeah. And um, uh, one of my uh, friends had gone from um, a big role in um, one of the soaps here, you know, big enough to be recognised and for people to know his name, and then he served me in a restaurant uh, out there. And that's the thing. You know, any British actor, almost any British actor, that you see in America, once you see them on TV... If, if they were well-known in Britain and they become well-known in America, there was an interim period where they probably had to work as a waiter or do something um, not in the industry because your, your, um, your success in the UK might help you get an agent in America, but you still have to work your way up there. Yeah, yeah. So that was a surprise. But now he's doing really well as an actor. And were you different as a person there, as a performer? Did you? Because when I lived there, I thought differently, entirely differently. I really enjoyed it, actually. I did enjoy a lot of aspects of life out there. Um, I mean, just just having the sun and warmth as often as you mm. do makes you feel happier because uh, if, if you're not working, but you have the sunshine, you can... You can go and jog or hike up Runyon Canyon. Um, or if you know someone who has a swimming pool, you can get into their pool or whatever. But, um, yeah, I felt I felt I could reinvent myself a little bit there. But also, also, you know, I, I won't go into too much detail. Um, but, you know, I, I, had, I, I was grieving and I wanted to just get out of the UK and sort of deal with some aspects of that just in a place where I could have a bit more privacy. So that to me was, it wasn't really just about work. In fact, to be honest with you, I, I, I had more professional opportunities in the UK than I, than I had in the US um, because of, of Little Britain and other things we'd done. Over here, you know, you'll have an idea and you'll have your agent and then you'll have uh, a production company to make the show. And then you'll have a, a broadcaster to show it. And uh, in America, you sort of you have an agent and you have a manager yeah. and there's a production company and there's a studio and there's a network. Yeah. And so suddenly a, a TV pilot that you could make here for three or four hundred thousand pounds, which is still a lot of money, um, will cost you the same pilot would cost you two or three million dollars in America yeah. because there's so many more people sort of taking their share. And that's. That's just a, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Yeah, you missed out lawyer because it's agent, oh, manager, yeah, lawyer, and then realtor. Because all the realtors, i.e. estate agents, are richer than anybody else apart from the plastic surgeons. Yeah, well, we should explain what a realtor is because it's not really the same as an estate agent. Because, you know, in this country, when you're buying a property or renting a property, you see the property you like and then and that property is you're represented by an estate agent and you talk to them. But in America, you have a realtor and that's the person who is an estate agent, but they're also the person tasked with finding you um, your, your new home. So they are, they are more like an agent for you as well as an agent for the property. <laughs> and it, yeah, and it, again, so it's just somebody else. I know, I um, remember. But also, can I say one thing, you which is that you, like. you have all these people, but yeah. actually no one does anything. <laughs>
<laughs> well, no, you do. That's the point. Because um, I went out there and I, I didn't intend to work at all. I just went out there. And, um, and you, you know, people say, well, why don't you do this? And somebody says, well, somebody literally offers you a job. So, look, do this for us. And you go, oh, I'm all right, thanks. And they go, well, have you considered the other aspect of it? And then they show you a figure and you go, oh, all right, then. And then you, 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 assemble, you have to assemble the team, which is the lawyer, the agent, the manager. And then you think, then they add up all their percentages and you think, actually, it's not worth me doing this, to be honest, because it's just like, yeah. it's massive. Um, and that's, I think that's why the pies are so big, because there are so many slices you have to, to hand out before you get your own turn at the buffet. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, yeah, it is different. Definitely. Oh, but def- different do, is one way of putting it. Well, yeah, I do like their ambition there and I like their scope. And I like the scale of stuff out there. I think that's very exciting. And there is just generally a can-do attitude. Yeah. You're so right. And I, I loved, I loved, and I still love the can-do attitude, especially of California. I don't really know anywhere else, to be honest. But we used to have this rat catcher called Ray from Western Exterminators because you have to have a rat catcher because you get massive oh, rats the size of small dogs and you get the coyotes coming down from the mountain to you know, you know, overnight. And uh, Ray used to turn up every Thursday and he was like, he was the happiest rat catcher ever. He was like, hi, hi, Billy. Hi, Chris. It's Ray from Western <laughs> Exterminator. I've come to catch me some more rats. Then you got the pool guy who's like a superstar and, you know, everybody has their own little thing going on. And somebody said to me yesterday, they said, it's much easier to change the way you look at the world and to try and change the whole world to be the way you want it. And I think a lot of people who, who live in L.A. especially, whether they're a waiter or a cab driver or whatever the heck they are, tend to, to adopt his sort of uh, philosophy. Yeah, I've met, I've met like really, really, really happy uh, uh, barmen there. Oh. And they're really happy and they earn a lot of money <laughs> from their tips. And they're really happy doing it. Whereas in this country, it might more likely be, not always, but it might more likely be a, a sort of step on the path to doing something else, you know, for some people. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's great. But, but the other thing was, I was out there and um, uh, so many things are cast now by self-tape. You know, you, f- you film yourself on, yep. your, on your phone or your computer. And, and also far fewer things are shot in L.A. because it's expensive to shoot in L.A. and there are tax breaks on shooting in other states in America and also in shooting in Vancouver or Toronto or Europe. And so I found that I was paying this premium to live in L.A. and actually more and more of my work was happening outside of L.A. And so uh, I also thought that, well, you know, my family is here. My stepfather is, well, he's now 89 or in marvellous health. And, you know, my mum is 75 now. And uh, so, you know, I just thought it's, it was time to come back here um, for a bit. But one day, one day I may yet uh, explore other parts of California. Let's talk a bit about stand-up. So you mentioned stand-up there over in America. Um, and I love this, your stories about stand-up before you met Reeves and Mortimer, particularly um, um, Bob Mortimer. Uh when you were just about to run away from the stand-up scene forever, I didn't really know you 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 had a go at more sort of traditional stand-up. So you had a go when you were sort of seventeen-ish, and then you had eighteen. An- I was sorry, 18, eighteen, and then yeah, you had yeah. another go. Um, you know, just a few years ago, how, how was your stand-up? How what's a Matt Luke? How does a Matt Lucas stand-up set even begin? Well, a Matt Lucas stand-up set. God, I hate talking. Matt hates talking about himself in the third person. He's so embarrassed. Sorry. Um, 
uh, nowadays, if I do stand up, uh, it's usually there's a benefit or something and I'm hosting it and I go on and I don't have any script at all and I just chat. And then when people are looking seriously dissatisfied, I then just introduce the next act. <laughs> so nowadays, but it does, it sometimes goes wrong. I was doing a benefit and we had to show a, a, um, a really, really, really serious charity film um, on this kind of, uh, on this giant screen. And uh, they had this huge TV and they showed this a really, really, really serious charity film about um, uh, young kids in trouble. And when the, when, you know, when the film finished and the lights came up, I said, you know, I look at, I look at that and I just think, I would love a TV like that. That looks brilliant. What's that? It's got to be 80 inches. And people didn't laugh, you know. Mm. They weren't happy about that joke because they were all in the, in the, in the mode of, of looking at this really serious charity They were in film. the moment, weren't they? I mean, you were having a yeah. go at changing the mood. It's that, but, you know, come on. Yeah, but, but it doesn't, it, you know, you've got to know your audience. And actually, actually doing charity benefits, I mean, you must have done lots of charity benefits. And sometimes the audience, I mean, the kind of the richer the audience, the tougher they are to play to, aren't they? You must have done charity events like that where, where the, I mean, it's that famous... Um, you know, Beatles line about rattle your jewellery. Um, sometimes charity benefits are really, really tough. Yeah, well, they can't figure out why they're miserable in the first place, you know, because lots of them are, um, because they're focused on the wrong thing, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and then you, it's your job to try and make them laugh and say so you're the least welcome person in the room. Well, it's just hard because yeah. you, you, tell them a, you tell them a very sad yeah. story in order to get them to open their wallets. Yeah. And then you try and make them laugh and then you tell them another sad story and you yeah. try and make them laugh and then Catherine Jenkins comes on. Yeah. So it's just a, it's just a sort of, um, uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not, a, it's not a comedy, it's not a comedy gig, No. you know, no. so you just have to, you just have to approach it differently. Oh, but God. that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing I do, you know, sometimes host those kind of things. And, and then, and then, I don't know, I, I just enjoy it. I feel a bit more free, a bit like the Bake Off. I mean, you just, you can't really prepare you can you can learn the lines for you know bakers you need to bake this but the rest of it you just have to just kind of be yourself but i would never have done that as an early stand up i would never have dreamed of going on stage as myself because i was i was so nervous uh, of who i was i was you know i was very very uh, freaked out about the fact that i that i wasn't straight you know i was very uh, i was a teenager and we're talking about the very beginning of the 90s. And there weren't many positive role models then for gay people. And, and you know, AIDS was, was the headline associated with being gay. And I just, I wasn't out to my family. And I didn't feel that I wanted to do a stand-up act where I was myself without properly being myself. I thought that would have been very dishonest. And also, I think the vogue was to go on stage with a cigarette in one hand and, you know, half a pint in the other and talk about. And I didn't I didn't drink, you know, and I was a bit too posh for the circuit, really. So so what did you start off? With? I mean, what was in the act then? Because, you know, that's so the what... act was this character yes. called Sir Bernard Chumley, who in a weird way was a much more honest reflection of who I was. Right. You know, it was this fruity old actor. A bit like Les well, Patterson or that kind of thing. Yeah, like like that kind of thing. And right. and uh, he appeared in the first series of Little Britain. I was going to say, I recognise the name. Yeah, Sir Bernard. And he was a fruity old actor. 
Um, and he had these sort of long anecdotes that went nowhere and <laughs> dropped loads of names. And there was a chance for me to do impressions of people. And, and it was, it was, it was, it would either do really well or really badly. And, and actually I supported Blur on tour and that was a, that was a disaster. Uh, I had a few, I had a few good gigs, oh, but I basically, I was in the country house video uh, and we, we got on well. And then they said, you know, would I, would I go on tour with them? And so they, they were doing this mini tour to promote the great escape album and, and kind of rehearse the set in before doing a big arena tour. And it was eight dates over nine days. And I would, I opened for them. And I mean, I, it's amazing that they didn't sack me during the tour because I mean, some, some places I got booed off after two minutes. Yeah. But Damon just wouldn't have done that. He just wouldn't have done that. I remember you talking about being booed off um, in front of two and a half thousand people. And it's like, you know, uh, Oh yeah. That was at the Edinburgh festival. That was heartbreak. I know. Yeah, that was really, that was one of the worst nights of my life. 25 years ago. That was, uh, the summer of 1995. And, um, this gig was running late and it was supposed to start, I think at 11 o'clock at night and it didn't get going till about half 12 and the audience were in a foul mood and it was Reeves and Mortimer and they had Mark Lamar on the bill they had uh, Harry Hill, Sean Locke, Charlie Chuck, uh, just more uh, Harry Hill. I mean, it's a great bill and, and, and myself. And, and, but they were all just that bit more experienced than me. And I went there to do my set and the, and the, and the gig was running late. Um, and people were waiting outside on the street to get in and they were drinking. And, and then I had to go off and do my hour long show with David at midnight and then finish that show, which actually didn't go that well, and then go back to the Edinburgh Playhouse. And I got on stage at 1.40 in the morning, I think. And I was doing quite well. And then a couple of my jokes just kind of died about five or six minutes into the set. And then a few people booed me off and I did not hang about. I got off that stage. But it was one of those car crash performances that everyone at the Edinburgh Festival, all of the agents, all of the other comedians were in the audience and the whole industry saw me get booed off. And it, and it, it was a massive punch in the gut because I'd been having a really good Edinburgh Festival. And it was, it was one of those things that I, you know, I gave up stand up probably 18 months after that. It was one of the contributory factors, you know, but what it did was push me further into the arms of working with David, you know, of thinking, well, actually, I don't just want to be here on my own. I want to be here with someone else. And because uh, once we were together, we would terrorize audiences, Chris. We wouldn't have stood for it. And so and so ultimately, it probably was a good thing that it happened. Maybe I'd gone as far as I could have gone as a stand up on my own. Yeah. And, you know, so you, you look at these things differently with age. I don't think there's anything, any maybe about it. I remember when we were flying high doing something on Channel 4 and Channel 4 said, I know, here's a great idea. Let's, let's get Evans to go over and host the Montreal Comedy Festival, which I did. And uh, the Emo Phillips, people like that on the bill, like massive hitters. And me, I hadn't told the joke in front of anyone in my life. And all I had was this pink suit and a black polo neck sweater. And, and that's all I had to hide behind. It was awful. It was also it was, really? it was minus sixty degrees. <laughs> I'm sure. I think it was colder though, atmospherically in the theatre than it was outside for me at least. It was. It was like, what am I doing here? Somebody, please, just get me on a plane and get me back to England. As and what did possible. you say? Because we we went to the Montreal Festival, and yeah, we did all right, but we didn't do the big gala. Did you do the big TV Just for Laughs gala? Hosted it. <gasps> I know. <laughs> 
listen. Did to you that. have what 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 material did you have? What I did can't you do? remember. I can't remember. Well, Vic and Bob famously died there. They oh. they sang my my lucky carpet. They and they famously died a death there. Oh, but no. They talk very they talk very proudly of that. <laughs> That's the difference. That's the difference. Is that you and me? You and oh, me remember just, these just things mortified. Just having a bit yeah. of a stretch here. Whereas whereas Jim and Bob are delighted to tell you stories of how badly things went. Well, let's let's talk about you know the the pack dog mentality of yourself and and David on that that massive little Britain tour, where you, which was a fearless tour. So Tasha, you've met who I'm married to. Our first proper date was at the Hammersmith Apollo. Uh, watching you guys on that tour oh wow i didn't know that uh, yeah and it was it was our, famously our first day and it was so funny god it was funny but it was oh, like um, you. you know i never went to a punk rock gig been to a few you know outlandish live events been on stage with the happy mondays that was interesting when that was pretty much me that was my blur moment um right because i got on really well with sean and then sean said why don't you come and join us at the reading festival on stage singing backing vocals and i sort of got the message that their fans didn't want me on stage when the first bottle of we hit me in the face it was that kind of <laughs> night you know um, yeah but um yeah uh you, you you guys on tour you were tearing it up and i I listened to your Desert Island disc yesterday in prep for our chat today, and that took place in the middle of the Little Britain tour, didn't it? And it was so yeah, interesting so, to, yeah. to hear your mood and your voice talking to Kirsty. You know, when you, and you were in the thick of it, you know, and that's 14 years ago now, you know. Um, what, what was it like, Matthew? Well, I think we, it was one of those things, and the same thing happened to Peter Kay, actually, where we started off a bit smaller. I mean, we started off in a 1,400-seater, and we were like, wow, here we are in Portsmouth in a 1,400-seater. And by the end of the tour, we were playing to 10 times as many people. And I think we, we I think our tour was, I think we, I think we put 250,000 seats on sale, which we thought was mad. And then, and then our promoter, Phil McIntyre, said, he called us and said, well, they, they, those, all those seats have gone in two hours. Should we put some more seats on? So, so we just put more and more on it. In the end, we played to over 800,000 people. And we went to Australia, where everyone said, you won't make any money in Australia, You'll, it'll cost you. But actually, we did. And, and um, it was, we ended up doing, I think, 252 dates. And um, we just, you know, we had this notion that the show you know when we first did little britain and we got on tv it was on bbc3 which we didn't think anybody would watch we were wrong and it was also on bbc2 and so in our heads we were making a bbc2 sketch show right and so we thought oh you know the sort of people that watch fry and laurie and mitchell and webb might watch us but actually what happened was um that little britain became a lot more mainstream i think partly because of Vicky Pollard, Lou and Andy. I don't know what it was, um, but it, it just became a lot more mainstream than we'd anticipated. And so we had this sense that when we were on, when we were doing our show, we might be playing to a lot of people that don't normally go to the theatre. So, so we sort of made two big decisions. One was to keep the ticket prices as low as we possibly could because we knew that people would want to bring their families and their friends and so if you came to see us, even at our peak, I think uh, certainly at the beginning of the tour, for most of the tour, the ticket prices were, I think, £22.50 and £27.50. Um, and, and that was quite low then. 
you know, and it went up a little bit as the tour went on, but not, it was never a huge amount of money. And we were quite proud of that. But the other thing is with the show itself, we thought, you know, we thought maybe people were coming to see it who didn't go and see a lot of theatre. And so we decided to do something quite spectacular. And we decided to to make the design of the show as literal as possible so that if we had a scene, you know, sometimes you go and see a show, right, in the West End, and there's a scene set in a church, and you would have a sort of just one simple projection of a stained glass window from an angle uh, high above the performer, and that represents a church. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's absolutely fine, and it's great, and a little bit of lighting. But we decided to go the other way, and we wanted to make everything look literal. And so we had the, you know, we we every set was was as you know you would be transformed and you would be taken somewhere else and also we had this giant projection and while we were off stage changing you would hear tom baker and then everything would be sort of point of view so it would be like you yourself were swooping across the country and zooming in through a window and then something else would fly in and we project on that so i think the show was quite visually stunning uh, for its time and so we had a kind of confidence in that, that even when we weren't on stage, there was always something good to look at. Um, and the other decision we made for that live tour was that we didn't want the show to be constantly, you were either, either I was on or David was on, just because one of us had to get changed. So we had these amazing, there were like pit stops in the wings where you'd sometimes have three or four people um, getting you from one character to another in maybe 20 seconds, if that. And sometimes that meant having two costumes underneath the one that you were wearing. Um, and we were very we were very dedicated to it. We rehearsed it a lot. We brought in a brilliant theatre director in Jeremy Sams, who'd, who'd done loads of great comedy work and, and done loads of big productions as well. And, um, and also, we were just... I mean, we did 252 dates, and I can honestly tell you that even on the last night of the whole tour when we were in Australia we were still changing the show because we just wanted it to be as good as it could be. We never, ever, ever didn't care. We never, ever went on stage half-assed, you know, because we loved doing it. And we did know how lucky we were to be in that situation. Yeah. So I can say that anyone who came to see the show always got the best that we could give them. That's what it felt like. And, you know, it, I, I remember seeing you at the Producers uh, musical and I went to see that eight times here and I couldn't believe Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick smashing it, knocking it out, out of the park every single night, you know, and, and matinees eight times a week. And it's it, that's the great thing about, you know, when you see people singing songs and, you know, how they sing them and are they present when they sing them. And Peter Kay famously, you know, has in his, uh, in his set list, he has these little brackets written with a show be present remember you're here just to bring him back all the time and it's so important but of course hugely successful rock and roll style tours you know notoriously send the the perpetrators the performers bonkers i mean and that that did happen didn't it to to a certain extent well i think i think maybe a, a bit more has, has been made of this imagine this a 252 date tour and we had two really small rows one was because we were um we had to kiss and I felt that it, because David hadn't <laughs> shaved, I was getting um, my my face was getting my chin was getting a bit sore and red. Right. Right. So we had a little argument over that. Yeah. And then we had another little argument in Australia. But actually, actually, that was it. And and um, we actually got on really well. You know, we got on really well. We were really focused. We were really professional. Right. I mean, the one thing the one thing about 
me is I used to smoke weed, but I gave up smoking weed um, over 20 years ago. So by the time we were doing Little Britain, I wasn't doing any weed. I barely drink. Uh, I'd given up smoking. David doesn't smoke. David hardly ever drinks. You know, it's very rare for him. So actually, um, we were both we were both very present and and just being sober and straight uh, in, you know, in your mind stops you often from from those kind of major fallouts. So, I mean, I wrote about those two little incidents in my book because really there wasn't any other great fallout in that tour. We were David was working very hard because he was training to swim the channel. And we were writing, we wrote some Little Britain specials during the day. We were writing the um, Little Britain Abroad specials and we were writing other things. And there was this whole kind of industry. You know, every day we'd have to get together and some people would go, we would like to make Little Britain slippers. We would like to make Little Britain clocks. Here's a Little Britain PlayStation 2 game. Here's a, here's a new format um, we'd like to issue Little Britain out on and some, you know, data cards with the show on or something. Here's um, some mobile ringtones for you to record. And so it was just for that period, it was so intense that we didn't really have time to argue. And it, and it, so, so actually, my memories of the tour are really being with David, having, you know, my late partner with me as much as possible, which was great. Um, and, uh, and just going from, you know, this is how rock and roll we were, that we would go from uh, venue to venue and I'd play something on, a, on the DVD player in the car and I was watching I, Claudius. That's how rock and roll I was. <laughs> but, you know, um, having been... We made a film once about the Stones on tour um, and it was, it was great. It was a great experience to make a proper, a proper film about them on tour and we went to join them. Um, over in Chicago, and you know they famously have a limo each. You know they have a, they have they each have a manager or separate a different warm up um, regimes backstage. And you do <coughs> you do you know learning from the best. You know you too uh, famously backstage. So they have this thing. They have a green room for the guests, and then they have a green room for their. You literally go through that green room, and then there's some more security, and there's some more um, black drapes, and then there's a green green room for family and friends, and then there's some more black drapes, and there's their green room, and it's just for the members of the band. And at the time, Paul, their manager, and you, you know you learn you learn you say oh they, th these guys have discovered a few things about touring over the years. I mean, you you had one really good go at it. You know, had you carried on doing that. Because it is a craft, isn't it? The craft <laughs> had, of... Had we carried on, I don't know. I mean, I'm surprised that... I mean, by that logic, they'll end up playing separate venues at the same time. No, I know, I, mean, I know. It's, but it's I interesting, though, isn't me it? And David, me and David, if the dressing room was big enough, we would always share a dressing room. Right. Always, if it, if it was big enough. Sometimes we had to have separate rooms because they were just much smaller at the theatres. But, I mean, we, we got along and... Um, some, listen, you, after a show, you just have to be a bit careful that you don't ruin your voice you know you've got a, your voice is precious and it's finite so you know if you talk all night long you won't have any voice i mean i'm currently rehearsing les miserables in concert which we hope will open on the 5th of december and actually it is also it's a bit like you know it's a superstar cast because it's alfie bow and or if alfie's not on it's john owen jones who's also amazing, amazing. it's michael ball amazing. michael ball does it carrie hope fletcher does it and by the way it is sold out but you can get the DVD of it and the CD of it, which I heartily <laughs> recommend. If, um, if baked potatoes for the young'uns, 
uh, lame is for the rest of you. But um, uh, we we um, that is also one of those things where everyone is super professional, but we're all protective of our voices. Yeah. Because uh, and and so like for instance, after a show, you love to meet the fans, but if you do. And you're outside for 45 minutes. You can. Your voice might be terrible the next no, day. No, I know. Well, Rick Astley, who's 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 managed by his lovely wife Lena, you know, and she's with him wherever he tours, and he gives it all the beans on stage. So, yeah. so in the car on the way back, and they're married, they will text each other, and they're both sitting on the same seat because that's how much he he looks after. Well, his she. Well, that's unnecessary. I mean, she can talk. Lena can talk. She doesn't need to save her voice. Well, sorry, I, I think he texts her. But the point is, you know, <laughs> one has to be very careful. And uh, Yeah, th- you do, you do. You don't, I mean, I know it's, it's, it's a bit boring because people go, oh, let's meet after the show. I mean, obviously, at the moment with this run, we're not allowed to meet anyone. I mean, we're doing all the distancing and getting tested. And so we can't have any guests or do anything at stage doors in our contracts that we have to just go straight home and isolate between performances. But we, we um, you can't, if you do all of that, the show will suffer. You have to be a yeah. little bit protected. So if the Rolling it. Stones are in a room, if the Rolling Stones are in a room with 500 people after the show, Mick Jagger won't have a, won't be able to do a show the next day. No, I remember because when we made that particular film that night, uh, the night of the concert, the film was made around it a few days before and a few days afterwards. We went back to the hotel and we finished off doing various shots and things. And then I was like, sort of, I was, I got back to the hotel about two o'clock, uh, half two. And there was nobody at the bar, and I, I hadn't had a drink all night. And I thought, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to go and have a beer. I'm going to have a cold beer, then I'm going to go to bed. And um, I sat at the bar, and about 20 minutes later, down comes Mick for his s- s- um, solitary glass of red wine. Then that was his party. Exactly what you're saying. So you can yeah. have you can have a bit of you time, but you can't ha- you can't have a bit of everyone time. And the thing is, you know, as you know better than anybody, Matt, and it was the same with TFI. People come to that show, and it's their big night out. You know, and it's it's in many ways it's their sort of Christmas Eve, but you can't have the time they're having. And also, you must know this as well that you can't. You know, when you get when you get when you are gifted the the honor of of getting to do the show itself, you can't out celebrate the show because the show is such a high. And for years, you know, I used to. Confu- I used to think, oh, right, okay, now we'll have the party, and then I realised, no, the show was the party for everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Everybody else can have the party, but you—the best thing you can do is just go home and have a glass of wine and go to bed. Do you miss it? I mean, I know you—you you brought it back a few years ago, and I really enjoyed it. Do you? Do you miss it, or is there a part of you that's quite relieved that you're not still doing that every week? It's so funny you should say that because thinking about questions I was going to put to you today, you know, I thought I. There were a few that I was about to write down. I thought, well, no, because I, I wouldn't really have an answer to that because because it's and th- that might have been one of the questions I would have asked you. I don't miss it at all, um, and that doesn't mean I, I don't. I would. I wouldn't love it to start again tomorrow, but I don't miss it because that's not. A, it's like me saying to you, "Do you miss Little Britain?" No, because it's. Yeah, part do you know of... why? You know why? You know why you don't miss it because so, you've had it. Because but, you've had it. Yeah. Because but... if you'd never had it, if you'd never. Ha- I mean, Robbie Williams once said. Yeah. That if somebody once I said to him, what would you do if you weren't, you know, who you are? He goes, I'd have gone on Big Brother. <laughs> and that's the thing, isn't it? Right. Which is which is uh, uh, because you've had it, Chris. You've had it. You've been the biggest. You've been the best. You did well out of it. So you, you don't have anything to prove. So now it's about enjoying yourself. Fancy doing Top Gear? Great. Don't want to do it anymore? Great. Do what you want. Which radio station do you want to work on? What do you want to do? Do you want to spend more time with your family? Great. Do that. You can make those choices. And that ultimately, that is, I think, that is better 
than when you're working your way all the way up. It's better. Well, it's better. Is, it's well, is, is more it nourishing. It's is more it, fulfilling. Yeah, it's better, but it's different. And you know, you, you I don't. I think they're incomparable because they're just at such dynamically different times of your life. You can't. They're apples and oranges. Also, the other thing to remember is right is that when we were on our way up and when we had probably our peak commercial success, it was before social media, really. I mean, I remember when we were doing Little Britain, there were a few little websites right. where they would talk about us. And it was like, oh, this is curious. Yeah. But there was absolutely no sense that any of that would filter into the mainstream. It was just a kind of fun, geeky thing to read what people were saying. But now, now you think, oh, my God, if you did the wrong thing and it got on the Twitter and this, that and the other. And now it's sort of... Is so powerful, and I and I I do also just wonder how you know so many mistakes that I made as a comedian, so many errors of judgment, so many misfires, so many tonal misfires that that would would have scuppered my career completely while I was just working out who I was, what my act was, because they would have been caught on a camera phone, and so so I think it's I think it would be harder now to be as bold. Uh, and do a stand-up act like that because if you if you got it a bit wrong, you might make a name for yourself in the wrong way. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because you know I've I've come across people um, in the last twelve months, twenty-four months, couple of years who are so profoundly clever and witty and pithy, and I said to them, "You should do a radio show," and they went, oh, "I couldn't do a radio show." And I'd say, "Why?" I said, "Well, you know, if I said the wrong thing, that'd be it. That'd be it. I'd be over by by the morning." And I'm like. What even you think that even, you know, vet, yeah. ex, extremely extraordinarily fearful of, and these are people who are so you know, like you know could could buy and sell me definitely not you but definitely me from a brain cell point of view you know a million times over but they just won't do it because the risks are too high. Yeah, it's 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 different, but I think I think I do believe that this this will pass, you know. And one of my someone I worked with was in the eye of a storm because something he'd done. Uh, was somebody had put it on Twitter and then he was attacked and blah, blah, blah. And that happened this week. And I wrote to him and I said, look, I know you're in the eye of the storm, but this will pass. This will pass. And and fortunately, thankfully, these things do pass. But I do I do sometimes worry about how uh, emerging talent will could be scuppered by the sort of constant presence of being monitored, mm. you know, and often being monitored and reported on and captured uh, and uploaded before before the thing you're trying to do has really evolved. The theme for the show today, one of the many themes of the show today, has been not quitting. You know, so a bit of grit, bit of resilience. Now, yeah. you have your stories to tell uh, with regards to this. Um, for example, before you and Dave Dave hit it big with Little Britain, you did think about calling it a day, didn't you, as a writing partnership? Well, I think yeah, because we we were we were sort of knocking on the door at the BBC and Channel Four, and we couldn't really get much away. And we had this show on on um, uh, this channel called UK Play. Do you remember UK Play? Yes, Chris? I do. I do. And uh, it was called Rock Profile, and we play all these different pop stars. And um, it was popular, but we were we were desperate to make the move onto what we thought was proper telly. You know, because um, uh, not everybody had cable or satellite then in, in the same way that people have access on Freeview now to all those extra channels. So we were really keen to sort of make that leap and we just couldn't seem to do it. And we did, we did, you know, Little Britain was our third radio pilot. Um, I mean, we were lucky, very lucky to get these opportunities. But this is before there was YouTube, before 
there was TikTok, before there was Instagram, before there were all these other outlets, you know, so you needed to be on radio or TV. And if you weren't, that was it. You only had a very limited audience. So, yeah, we, we, I think the night before the Little Britain radio series, we kind of said, this is it. This is our last shot. And if this doesn't work, we should probably go and do something else. How about that? And do you think it, do you think it would have been, though? It may have been. It may have been. I mean, that's. I think we had we had worked uh, by that stage. We'd worked together for nearly six years, and um, yeah, I think it probably would have been. Yeah, we. I mean, we were still friends, but we just probably thought, well, you know, it's not happening because we'd seen the League of Gentlemen and Armstrong and Miller and Mel and Sue and lots of other people sort of go past us. And there's always that feeling, isn't there? Oh, the ship is going to sail without me. Mm. And that is why resilience is so important, because sometimes you have to wait for your time. But later on, you know, we look back and thought, well, we were made to wait. But when it came, boy, did it come, you know, uh, in terms of Little Britain and beyond. So it was worth the wait. But you can only say that with retrospect, can't you? You can't you don't know at the time whether you're going to have that success. Um, what about your Desert Island Discs? Because I love them, by the way. You can listen to all the Desert Island Discs again via the DID podcast, of course. And yours uh, were particularly fascinating. A, the tune selection was interesting, especially that, that French one that you'd only just discovered. That was hilarious. Do you remember that? Well, I'm also the only person, I think, in the history of Desert Island Discs to, uh, to choose a Kids From Fame song. Well, which is awesome. And didn't you go to see the Kids From Fame? Yes. That was the first concert I went to see. I think I was about eight years old at the Albert Hall, went to see the kids from fame at the Albert Hall. And uh, Leroy, they all ran into the audience and Leroy ran quite near us. And that was our big thing. That was our story. Leroy ran quite near us. <laughs> so cool. That, that was, I love it. And quite near you was enough, wasn't it, for the time being? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely, yeah. But you also refused um, the Bible, because you get given the Bible anyhow in the complete works of Shakespeare. Did you refuse both those or just the Bible? Oh, I can't remember. You know, the book I took in was The, uh, the Meaning of Lif, which was uh, the Douglas Adams and John Lloyd book, which is... It's an amazing book. It's uh, it's basically um, they take place names from the UK mm. and then they give them meanings. And it's really, really, really funny book. Um, if your stocking still has some room in it after buying Merry Christmas Baked Potato, the joke book, the lamest CD and the lamest DVD, I think people should buy The Meaning of Lyft. I can't remember if I took the Bible or not. No, you didn't. You, you refused oh. the Bible. And I, I, I? Sort of, I get why at the time, but... I thought, well, hang on a minute. If you ignore the sort of the dogma of it, there's some pretty handy stories in there. There's some pretty pretty cool lessons in there. So I thought uh, maybe you want to rethink that. Would you take it nowadays or not? I don't know, really. I mean, I grew up. I grew up quite observant uh, as a Jew, you know. Yeah. And I grew up and, and went to to Hebrew classes every Sunday, and and again uh, as I got older on Tuesday afternoons. So I think I think maybe I maybe I felt I already knew the Old Testament. <laughs> Hey, good luck with that. Um, but you did say, you said you said to Kirsty, you said, um, I've been told I can't take Arsenal Football Club. And she, mm. says, she says, no, you can't take Arsenal Football Club. Of course, don't be silly, Matt. And, um, and then you said, OK, but can I take a restaurant? And then she, gra my, she yeah. granted you a restaurant. And I th I'm yeah. thinking, well, we'll get on to the restaurant in a sec, because I've been to the restaurant you, you chose, by the way, which is probably the best-kept secret in the whole of the culinary world. Um, and I'm not sure we should sort of 
give away where it is because then maybe we won't be able to get in again. But um, I thought, well, hang on a minute. If you can take a restaurant, you can take Arsenal Football Club. Her thinking, I, I didn't get her, her criteria there. No, but if I'd taken Arsenal mm. and no other teams, they wouldn't have anyone to play. Oh, there is that. So to take, to take my favourite restaurant... Mm. Um, Am I allowed to say what it's called or would you rather I didn't? No, I don't mind. I think we should um, because I've been there once. And when I tell, well, I've been there twice, actually. But when I tell people about it, they don't believe me. So you just describe it and I'll say, see, there's somebody else who says it is what it is and where it is and, and you know, what it's in. OK, so this is a restaurant basically frequented by Jews and criminals. <laughs> and it's called it's called Oslo Court. I'm so glad you said that because I couldn't, yeah. but it's true. No, I, I am Jewish, so I, I'm going to say that. Uh, it's called Oslo Court, <laughs> yes. right? And the restaurant is on the ground floor of, a, of just this sort of nondescript block of flats yes. in St John's Wood in yes. London, right? But when you go in there, mm. it's like a sort of piece of performance art. It's like an immersive experience. Because so you go in there, and in a glorious, wonderful, heartwarming way, it's like stepping back into about 1982. Yes. Um, everything is sort of pink in there. Is that shade of pink you haven't really seen, probably since you went to Marbella in 1982. Yeah. Um, but the food, the food is, firstly, the food is delicious. Secondly, it's, it's like... Um, sort of beef wellington and prawn cocktail. It's all those uh, sort of garlic mushrooms. It's sort of dishes that, again, were popular back then, uh, more so now than now. But uh, great fresh fish. But also it has uh, a man called Neil, who's the most amazing dessert waiter in London. And he comes out with a dessert trolley and he tells you what you're going to have. So you don't really get to choose. And he just says, if you like creme brulee, I have for you the creme brulee. Would you like a creme brulee? Would you like fruit salad? Well, don't bother, it's boring. And then he just sort of gives you all these different desserts. He sort of, he sort of intrinsically knows what you should be eating. But it's, it's, a, it's very reasonably priced, actually. It's unbelievably um, reasonably priced. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and everyone loves it. I mean, I went, I've, been there with, um, I've been there with uh, Boy George and Barbara Windsor. I've been there with Will Self. But mainly, I go there with my mum and my brother and my stepdad, and we just love it. It is awesome. We love it. It's a real treat. And they have to roll you out of there because you eat a lot. And it is, I do think it was originally a ground floor flat because you knock on the door and it looks like a flat and, and then they put your coats in where you'd put the coats if you had the flat and your mates came round. Yeah, absolutely. And it's packed. That's the other thing. It's very hard to get a you table. Can't get in. I mean, they you book, can't get in. Yeah, they book months in advance. I mean, I don't know if it's open right now. I don't know what the situation is, but it is, it is, it's called Oslo Court and it's the perfect place for birthdays. Uh, and anniversaries it's just there's something really special and everyone is treated like a king or a queen there they're they're just the most wonderful hosts and right. uh there you go advert over no i by the way I, when i heard you say that i couldn't believe it because honestly i tell people and they just don't they think i'm having them over and it's yeah it's just maybe we should just keep it it's our like secret. nowhere else on the planet literally nowhere else on the planet right uh, how come you love musicals so much was it in your dna do you think I don't know. I think what happens is there's some sort of processing that goes on that if you're gay, you love musicals. <laughs> I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works. I don't understand it. It's just a thing See? that sort of happens. My brother is not gay. Right. He thinks musicals are fine. So do I. Um, I don't, I, unless it was Hamilton, I don't think I've ever heard him listen to the soundtrack of a musical. Mm. I think he's just, he thinks they're good. Um, uh, but he's not like me. 
I get a bit moist when there's a new musical coming up. I mean, it's just, excuse the imagery. I just, I just love musicals and I don't really know why. Um, uh, there's, I think sometimes there's something, songs in musicals are a bit more melodic. And also, of course, you get to know the characters. So when they sing, mm. it sort of has a greater meaning and a greater resonance. Yeah. What do you think? You like musicals, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I do. But I'm, again, you know, because you're a gay man, you can say things that, that, that I perhaps Shh, were no thinking. Knows, um, no <laughs> but um But it's so true, isn't it? I mean, it is true. You know, Ozzy Nick here, his partner, uh, other gay men that I know, um, the London Gay Man's Choir, uh, they just love a musical. And I, I like musicals, but you blimey, you blimey. Musicals. Well, I'm in them. I'm in them. That's the thing. I have to sort of drop everything when when they ask me to go back into Les Mis. I just, even though I've done it before, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I don't know. There's something. Um, there's something about the people that are in musicals and the people that work on them, the crew, and uh, and even you know even the front of house staff. And there's a kind of when you're in a, a good musical and there's a kind of family feel to it. And even the audiences that come back and see you again, it's like, and that's in terms of being in a musical, but I don't know, it's weird. It almost makes you feel part of something. I think when I was a kid growing up, uh, th there was, I was a bit confused about myself, you know, because being gay was sort of, it was a bit invisible. I hadn't really heard of it. And yet I would sit <laughs> in my bedroom listening to the soundtrack of 42nd Street yeah. and I don't know what it was. Those female characters—they just sort of awakened something in me. I do. I, I. I mean, I'm sure people have much. You know, the academics will understand what the link is between being deeply homosexual and loving musicals. <laughs> I don't know what deeply, it is. I love the phrase deeply. Deeply. Deep, I used to hear that like when, when somebody Absolutely when I was a screamer. kid, people used to go, "Is he gay? Oh, he's a raging queen." As if there's like <laughs> steep gradients of it. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> oh, he married a man. He married a man, but he's not raging. Yeah. Can we develop the, um, the yes. gay musical theory to um, to liking Mariah Carey, Celine Dion and perhaps Barbara Streisand as well? Yeah, I don't mind them. I mean, actually, I, yeah, they're all good. I think, um, uh, you know, what I listen to a lot. I actually listen to quite a lot of like weird 70s rock these days i listened to do you know three dog night of course i do, yeah, do you remember yeah. them yeah yeah. jeremiah was a bullfrog and all of that yeah i'm listening to them a lot and i love i you know who my favorite but i love well i love queen, queen. and i love queen. abba the beatles but yeah. you know who my favorites are i thought i know proclaimed... uh, okay oh, sorry i'm sorry to I, love I but but freddie mercury is your absolute hero oh. and the proclaims your favorite band is that right that's right yeah 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 absolutely but uh, I love Ben Folds and the Divine Comedy. But yeah, I like those. I like those big diva singers as well. I mean, uh, Mariah, and of course now we have Sia and Lana Del Rey, and there's a fantastic musician called Dodie. Have you come across Dodie yet? No. She's Scottish, and she is she's mesmerising. She really is. Okay. And uh, yeah, Dodie. Thanks for the heads up there. Um, just tell okay. us if you don't mind recounting the 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 day you heard of the very, very sad and tragic pa passing of your hero. Of Freddie? Yeah. Well, I was, oh God, I, I they had announced that he was, uh, that he'd uh, been diagnosed with AIDS the night before. And then that night that he died, yeah, I cried all the way through the night. And then the next day I wore black. And then the day after that, I went to his house and lit a candle. And I wrote, a, it, there were lots and lots of notes pinned up. Uh, and there was a sort of vigil and uh, and I wrote um, there can be only one.
because that was the, uh, the the tagline from the film Highlander, and Queen had done the music to Highlander. And um, yeah, I was really, really, really devastated when Freddie Mercury died, almost as if almost as if he was a member of the family. I mean, it was so it was so strange, and it was just it was just so sad because in his pomp, he was like a superhero, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, there are those pictures of him wearing Superman um, uh, t-shirt, but he just was. He just was like a superhero in in a way like Michael Jackson was. There was sort of there was something other about him. Yeah. You know, there was something almost superhuman and almost alien about him. And Freddie Mercury was so proud, wasn't he? He would strut that stage. So the idea that he was sort of cut down in his prime was just heartbreaking, I think. Yeah, and you were particularly... you remember it as well. Yeah, of course. You, how, did you, how did you respond? Oh, I was devastated. I mean, you know, there were all the uh, whispers and the rumours. I remember uh, the headline that you, you were particularly perturbed about. Um, was it on, on the front page of the Evening Standard that night? Do you remember that? The Yeah, on, on editorials as it well. Was an editorial, yeah. yeah. Um, when uh, basically they were reflecting on his life and the way he'd led his life and... I think you, you didn't you put it didn't you say they were suggesting that he got what he deserved or something like that? Yeah, Joe Haynes and Joe Haynes wrote a column in the Mirror, and it was it's really really alarming when you read it now. Um, but that was uh, also that was that did reflect a lot of people's attitudes towards being gay. You know, there was this just this link between being gay and AIDS, and so it was very scary growing up. And so I mean, moving on, you know, another ten years or so, when me and Dave were doing Little Britain. Um, we we just wanted to be really proud about being different. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I'm the gay one, but we wanted to be just proud. So it was important to us that, like Daffith, the only gay in the village, was gay. He wasn't just sort of. Um, uh, it, it wasn't like John Inman, where it was sort of inferred. He, we were just gay, you know. Uh, uh, Daffith, <laughs> I mean, I can't say we because I can't talk about David there. But uh, uh, you know, uh, David married a very nice lady and had a child, but. I, me, I am the, um, you know, it, it was about being gay. Absolutely. And um, I always think, like, what would have happened, you know, if Freddie Mercury had been around another 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. I wonder if he'd been able to be a bit more out about his private life in a way. But it just wasn't that, it wasn't that time, was it? People no. weren't ready for it. And it's incredible to think it, it was It was so much in our lifetime because it sounds like we're talking about a bygone age, but, it, you know, yeah. we were both around yeah. at the time. It's, well, there is an amazing TV series coming on in the new year written by Russell T. Davis and starring Ollie Alexander from years and years. And it's called It's a Sin. And it's about that period. And it's uh, uh, about a, a group of young gay people. And I fortunately got to see got to see it and it is it is absolutely stunning it's russell's best work i think and we already know how brilliant he is and uh, and i think it will come as a shock to a lot of people um uh in terms of how people were about being gay and 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 how some people who you know who were who were very ill with with hiv and aids were sort of abandoned by their families so i right now you know, it's still not easy to be gay, but it's so much easier than it was, you know, and I, I do feel very, very lucky uh, in that regard, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about the decision. You're in a balloon, a hot air balloon, OK, and yes. you are losing. This heart. might have to be. Sorry, Chris, this might have to be my last one because I've got to go to rehearsals very shortly. Is, okay. this, is that OK? Yeah, that's fine. I don't mind. Yeah, sorry. So you're in um, a hot air balloon, okay? Oh yes, I am. And, windy, um, there's, windy, <laughs> there's only two things in the balloon that you can get rid of, uh, apart from yourself, which you don't want to, otherwise you'd be dead. Uh, and one is um, football, and the other one is musical theatre. And you can only jet oh. you can only jettison one. Which one goes? 
Oh, you are a mean, cruel. <laughs> you you left that to the last question as well. Oh gosh, you know what? Despite what you've just said, I'm chucking myself out because I don't want to be. <laughs> I don't want to be around. I don't want to be around. I don't want to be around without one of those things. I love them both so much. <laughs> I don't want to be around without one of them. So you know what? Let them both flourish. I've had a good life. All right. Off just, I go. Just briefly, because that was quick. So I'm gonna I'm gonna eat one more out of you. Um, okay. Just quickly, you've talked about being gay a uh, lots and lots and lots. You've mentioned it on this show. No you one know. knows. No yeah, one I know, knows. I know. But when you finally came out, one of the funniest things I ever heard you say was, "I finally came out to one of my best friends." Who then said, and, and by the way, you know, the way to come out, I understood, was first of all, you don't say homosexual. You start off with, with well, I'm, I've got something to tell you, I'm bisexual. And this pal of yours came out and said, oh, so is my girlfriend, and completely stole your thunder. Well, it's that, it's that thing, isn't it? Buy now, gay later. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, and I was livid. I was absolutely livid. And, it, and, and, you know, the only gay in the village character yes. was, was uh, suggested by David and... and uh, it, it was a little <laughs> observation we'd made about someone we'd both met. But actually, so you know, it, it, it sprang from David's idea. But I definitely could uh, identify with David's um, sort of need to be out, but also uh, frustrate, you know, want to be surrounded by other people, but also also that instantly makes him less special. Right. You know, you self-mythologize in the closet and what a life I'm going to live. And then when you come out, you actually now have to live that life. And that's and that is actually like, oh, now I actually do have to go on a date. Now I have to do these things. And now I have to hear that everyone else is flipping gay as well. This is, you know, and yeah, I, 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 I Chris, I miss the days of gay shame. That's all I'm saying. Bye. I want everyone now. back in that closet. Gay later. Bye now, gay later. Matt, yeah. thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. Lots I love you. you. I love you too. I don't even like guys and I love you. Uh, <laughs> okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. So much Matt Lucas and so little time, but he's a busy boy. You know, he's in Les Mis. Um, you can buy that, apparently. You can't go and see it anymore because it's sold out. Um, Happy Christmas Baked Potato. That's out there for charity now. The Bake Off rolls on into 2021. And what the heck is going to happen with him and Williams next? I, for one, can't wait. This has been How To Wow. If you've enjoyed it, please do review and rate and subscribe because all that helps. And once again, can I just give a shout out to this episode's sponsors, Athletic Greens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash howtowow now and join health experts, athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash howtowow. And if you do input the howtowow bit of that URL, you'll get a free year supply of vitamin D and five travel-free sachets today. That's their special offer to you by us. Athleticgreens.com slash howtowow. Okay, ta-da. Sorry. Ta-da! Ta-da, ta-da, ta-da.